Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Monday, the 22nd of February, 2021. News. Room for grouse moor management and rewilding in Scotland. This article is by D. Ward. Very few issues are simple, despite the often polarised nature of public debate, especially on social media. In rural Scotland, the discourse is just as stark, particularly when it comes to the pros and cons of grouse shooting and the benefits of rewilding. Recently, gamekeepers have been wading through snowdrifts to ensure a good supply of food for birds on estates across the country. This hidden conservation continues mainly unnoticed. At the same time, media attention has been gained by groups proposing to introduce Eurasian links to Scotland. In the rewilding debate, the historic management of land in Scotland is often overlooked. Tree cover has been reduced over centuries by the activities of man, which has led to the extinction of large herbivores and apex predators. At the time of the Romans, Scotland had less tree cover than it has today, so this is not a new problem. And during the 20th century, a lot of ancient meadows were ploughed up to produce food for the war effort. Tied to this was the introduction of fertilisers and pesticides in the 1960s that left few places for wildlife to prosper. Where wildlife has thrived is on estates with gamekeepers. Typically, wild habitat was encouraged for shooting so not every inch was commercially farmed. Foxes, crows and stoats were kept in check so smaller birds could survive and breed. Against this imperfect background, I draw my own experience from my estate in the Angus Glens, which is a modest yet beautiful upland estate with some grouse and a lot of wildlife. We have high densities of hares and 100 different bird species, including nesting eagles, peregrines and marlin. But this has taken a lot of work. We have planted 250,000 trees in the last 15 years, mainly along river banks and on the lower slopes of the moor, re-meandered burns, restored peatland, as well as reducing the number of mesopredators like stoats, weasels and foxes and planted lots of bird friendly crops. The results have been amazing and one of the outcomes has been increased numbers of red grouse. We decide in early August each year after our counts how many surplus grouse can be shot. 
Shooting of grouse and deer sits comfortably with the other tourism and wildlife-based aims of the estate and brings in much-needed income, often from European visitors. Each person coming to Scotland from abroad spends money in our cities as well as locally in the Angus Glens. This revenue benefits local tradespeople, pubs, hotels and other businesses as well as our wildlife and biodiversity plans. Sustainable grouse moor management can deliver biodiversity. Red grouse, black grouse, mountain hares, ring oozles, curlew, lapwing, golden plover and a host of raptors, just as sustainable farming can deliver good quality food using fewer pesticides whilst allowing wildlife corridors, wetland and natural areas. Rewilding can deliver the Caledonian pine forests with beavers and elk that many crave. There is room for all of this in Scotland, but we need to work together with local communities and rural workers like gamekeepers to ensure we can deliver these nature-based solutions. This article is by Dee Ward, who is the owner of Rottal Estate near Kirrimuir and Vice Chair of Scottish Land and Estates. The Herald, Wednesday the 17th of February 2021. News. Covid Scotland, almost 1,000 hospital infections in three weeks. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Almost 1,000 patients were definitely or probably infected with coronavirus while in hospital during the first three weeks of January, data shows. The latest hospital-acquired infection statistics from Public Health Scotland reveal 999 patients are likely to have caught the virus on a ward for treatment unrelated to COVID-19 between January the 4th and January the 24th, more than any other month during the pandemic. In the week ending January the 24th, there were 228 patients who were definitely infected while already in hospital, the second highest since the start of the pandemic, and a further 81 probable cases. The data records definite cases of hospital infection where a patient tests positive 15 days or more after being admitted and probable cases where a positive test is recorded between 8 and 14 days after admission. Both measures are down slightly from the record high of 358 definite or probable infections the week before but account for a higher proportion of Scotland's total weekly cases, 2.56% compared to 2.41%. It takes the total combined figure of suspected hospital infections in Scotland to 4,455, with 3,115 definite cases and 1,340 probable cases. During First Minister's questions on Wednesday, Nicola Sturgeon was asked by Scottish Conservative MSP Alexander Stewart what more can be done to stop the soaring rate of infections in hospitals. 
There is a significant and very strong focus on infection control in our hospitals, Ms Sturgeon replied. What we find with COVID-19 and what we have found is that the trend of hospital-acquired infection mirrors community transmission. So these figures are still from a period when community transmission was much higher than it is right now. We hope that as community transmission has reduced, so too will hospital infection. But every single day, those who work in our hospitals focus very, very hard on trying to minimise the prospect and the possibility of infections being passed on. One of the key lessons for this in the context of COVID-19 is that the relationship between community transmission and hospital transmission is quite a strong one. So the more we can do to reduce community transmission, the more we help reduce it in our hospitals as well. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The Herald, Friday the 19th of February 2021. News. COVID Scotland, NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, rules out asymptomatic COVID-19 testing centres. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. Glaswegians will now be offered asymptomatic testing in a bid to identify those who may be infectious and spreading the virus without knowing it. The programme, funded by the Scottish Government, is to be rolled out at pop-up sites across Glasgow, with new walk-in test centres located at Glasgow Central Mosque and at Govan Hill Neighbourhood Centre, and will operate for several weeks. The centres will be staffed by Armed Forces personnel. People living in surrounding communities who do not have COVID-19 symptoms are encouraged to come forward for the lateral flow tests from March the 1st. Dr Linda de Castecker, Public Health Director for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, that's the NHS GGC, said, We know that COVID-19 is often spread by people who don't have symptoms or they are so mild they do not recognise they have the infection. Asymptomatic testing enables identification of infection so that people are not spreading the infection to their families, work colleagues or the wider community as they go shopping or exercising. This has the potential to reduce the spread overall. That means we will be more likely to be able to reduce restrictions more quickly. Asymptomatic testing will also help us learn about the rate of infection in people not showing signs of the virus. Please come forward for testing to help reduce transmission of the virus in this area. The centres will also give advice about support for isolation for people with a positive test. Swabs from lateral flow tests do not need to be sent to labs for analysis and the results should be known within an hour. Similar test facilities will be set up in other Glasgow neighbourhoods in coming weeks. Wastewater tests and the most up-to-date data will be used to identify communities where asymptomatic testing is needed. NHS GGC said additional mobile testing will also be undertaken 
as a rapid response to any outbreaks. Glasgow City Council leader Susan Aitken said, I would encourage people not displaying COVID-19 symptoms to volunteer for a test where asymptomatic testing centres have been set up in their local area. The test results will help to detect the virus and limit its spread in our communities. Authorities are also urging people to continue to follow measures including physical distancing, using face coverings and hand washing to help reduce the risk of spreading the virus. Public Health Minister Mary Gujan said targeted testing in this way will help us find and isolate more cases by targeting resources with communities where there is high prevalence, helping us to identify more cases of the virus and giving us all a better chance of stopping it from spreading. However, a test only tells us if we are positive at the point in time that we are being tested. It does not mean that we can stop following all of the rules and guidelines which are in place to protect all of us. Testing is only one layer of protection against this virus. All others, including vaccination and the facts guidance, work to greatest effect when they work together. So it is essential people continue to follow the restrictions currently in place to suppress COVID to the lowest possible level in Scotland. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald, Tuesday the 23rd of February 2021. News. Covid vaccine. Drop in numbers due to bumpy supplies. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Scotland's National Clinical Director Jason Leach said the reason for lower vaccination numbers across the UK in recent days was due to supply. Asked about the UK-wide drop in the number of jabs administered, he told BBC Radio 4's PM it is supply is what is going on. I wouldn't call it a supply problem. It is completely predicted. We knew it would happen. For Pfizer in particular, but also AstraZeneca, the supply is lumpy, forgive the expression. We don't get 9 million doses on a Tuesday, we get 15,000, then we get 150,000, then 7,500. So it comes in dribs and drabs, so you have to adapt your demand to that supply. And Pfizer made a decision, the right decision, to close a bit of a factory in order to massively upscale their production. So the end product is still coming, the 110 million doses, but they are just coming in a lump over a period of time. So we will get back up to those big numbers. We can do 400,000 a week, we just need the supply. As of Tuesday morning, 1,465,241 people have received their first dose of the COVID vaccination and 43,203 have received their second dose. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The Herald, Wednesday the 17th of February 2021. News. Edinburgh Newtown Quarter, Hotel, Offices and Homes Plan gets go-ahead. This article is by Brian Donnelly. 
plans for a hotel, offices and 350 homes at a former Royal Bank of Scotland site in the Scottish capital have been granted. It is subject to conditions including relating to height, affordable housing, the hotel and the park at the site called the New Town Quarter. Consultation by Ediston and Orion began before the site was acquired from RBS and has involved four formal public consultation events, the developers said. The £250 million plans include a 116-bedroom hotel, which fronts onto Dundas Street to the west, Iyer Terrace to the east, and onto the new public realm link route to the south. The main entrance will sit at the junction with Dundas Street. The hotel block is expected to include a bar and a restaurant. A portion of the ground level is a double height area with cafe, restaurant and lounge area. The office block is located on the southwest corner of the site. It covers to 9,820 square metres gross external area. There is also a retail unit of 282 square metres at street level on Dundas Street. Edinburgh City Council planning officials said Historic Environment Scotland does not object to the application but has concerns with some elements of the scheme such as the relationship of the proposals with some listed buildings. However, when viewed in the urban context of the site coupled with the benefits of redeveloping the site with a more sympathetic design taking cognizance of the listed buildings and the retention of the trees, the character and setting of the listed buildings is preserved. Councillors on the Economic Development Subcommittee voted 7-4 to four in favour of the plans. This article is by Brian Donnelly. The Herald, Friday the 19th of February 2021. News. McGill's buys 35 electric buses in £17.5 million investment. This article is by Brian Donnelly. A £17.5 million investment in all electric buses has been announced by McGill's. A total of 35 buses have been ordered by the company, comprising 23 fully electric single-deck buses for McGill's Johnston to Glasgow route, as well as 12 fully electric double-deck buses for Explore Dundee. Explore Dundee was acquired by McGill's from National Express in December. Alexander Dennis Limited, ADL, are to supply the 12 double-deck buses plus one single-deck bus while Pelican Utong will supply 22 Utong E12 vehicles to the firm. As part of its investment into the cleanest transport technology, McGill's will also install new electrical charging infrastructure for its depots in Johnston and Dundee. The electric buses and infrastructure will be delivered in the second half of this year in advance of the COP26 conference. McGill's investment is aided by the Scottish Ultra-Low Emission Bus Scheme. In addition to the all-electric transportation, McGill's, which says it is the UK's largest independent bus operator, 
also announced that it is in advanced talks with a variety of partners to bring 12 hydrogen buses into business in the next 12 months. The new fleet purchase takes McGill's capital investment since 2014 to more than £50 million, around £40 million of which has been spent on new vehicles. Ralph Roberts, chief executive of McGill's group, said McGill's is recognised for the exceptionally high standard of its fleet and we're delighted to be making this new investment into electric vehicles. Customer and driver comfort is at the forefront of our specification and we are confident that bus users will enjoy the silence and comfort, safe in the knowledge that their already low emission journeys are now zero emission at the point of use, with the benefits it bring for air quality and the environment. We led the charge on introducing Clean Diesel Euro 6 fleet and by the end of 2021, the McGill's Group will operate more electric buses than any other operator in Scotland. The company is owned by Scottish businessmen and investors Sandy and James Easdale, whose extensive portfolio includes commercial and residential property, transport, manufacturing and hospitality interests. Sandy Easdale said... The transport sector continues to be affected by the pandemic, but this hasn't dented our confidence in the business. Far from it. When we purchased Explore Dundee in December, we promised we would continue to invest, and this brings our expenditure to more than £50 million over the past seven years. McGill's has been built into such a successful brand by our willingness to spend and provide a quality service to passengers, and this will continue. James Easdale said, The last 18 months has seen Sandy and I announce construction projects worth more than £400 as well as the planned £20 million redevelopment of the Watt Brothers store in Glasgow. Whilst we've been asked if our focus has shifted from transport to property, this deal for new vehicles demonstrates that McGill's continues to be a key business for us and one which we will continue to grow in the years to come. This article is by Brian Donnelly. The Herald, Tuesday the 23rd of February 2021. News. Michael Gove to lead review into using NHS app as vaccine passport to prove COVID-free status. This article is by Michael Settle. Using the NHS app on a mobile phone to show a person's vaccination status or latest COVID test result is to be at the centre of a UK government review considering the ethical issues in introducing vaccine passports. Boris Johnston has asked his Cabinet colleague Michael Gove to lead the review into the deep and complex issues surrounding so-called COVID status certificates. However, it is also understood that it will also investigate whether businesses such as pubs and theatres could be banned from making access conditional on vaccination alone. Current thinking is that customers required to prove they are COVID-free by venue owners 
may be able to use the NHS app to prove that they have either received a jab or a recent negative test and so be granted entry. Showing proof of either a jab or a negative test is believed to be one option being considered by UK ministers to avoid discriminating against those who have declined getting inoculated for health or other reasons. However, the issue of vaccine passports opens up wider questions as to whether or not people could be denied jobs or access to their workplaces if they could not prove they were COVID-free. Senior Whitehall officials, as well as Nadim Zahawi, the government's vaccines minister, have frequently appeared to dismiss the idea of introducing vaccine passports in the UK. There is, however, a growing acceptance that they will be needed when international travel resumes, as some countries are already indicating such COVID status certificates will be needed to cross their borders. During a visit to a school in East London yesterday, Mr Johnson acknowledged that fervent libertarians would reject the idea of the need to show a vaccine passport, but noted how others would think there's a case for it. The PM said there could be medical reasons why people were not able to be vaccinated or might be mistaken for others who refused to receive a jab. We can't be discriminatory against people who, for whatever reason, can't have the vaccine, declared Mr Johnson. He added, Mr Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister, would lead a review getting the best scientific, moral, philosophical, ethical viewpoints on it and will work out a way forward. At Holyrood, Nicola Sturgeon said people needed to keep an open mind to the possibility of vaccine passports as she set out her plans for easing Scotland's lockdown. The First Minister told the Scottish Parliament that she would never support something that deepens social inequalities or took away people's civil liberties based on their medical history. But she added, we should think properly without closing our minds at this stage to what a vaccine passport or certificate might offer us. Willie Rennie for the Scottish Liberal Democrats expressed some concern about vaccine passports slowly graining traction and insisted they must not be used to access public services. Mr Gove's review will report to the PM before the June 21st date, pencilled in for a full reopening of the economy in England. This article is by Michael Settle. The Herald, Thursday the 18th of February 2021. News. Scots pupils to have the right to outdoor activity in new plan to fight mental health concerns. This article is by Martin Williams. A plan to guarantee all young people in Scotland have the right to benefit from the outdoors is being drawn up as a study showed that around two in five young people in Scotland 
were concerned about their mental health and well-being during lockdown. Scottish adventurers Molly Hughes and Mark Beaumont have joined politicians from across the political spectrum and a coalition of youth groups to launch a bid to ensure that from 2022, residential outdoor learning is embedded across the curriculum and that all young people benefit in both primary and secondary school. It comes as a shocking lockdown lowdown survey by YouthLink Scotland, which ran between the 28th of September and the 2nd of November 2020, found that the most common concerns were around the inability to see friends and family, difficulties with keeping in contact, and the negative impact of reduced socialising on mental health. This study, which received 6,043 responses, found that 40% did not feel good about their physical health and well-being. A UK-wide ONS survey has found that measures of happiness and life satisfaction are at their lowest levels since the start of the pandemic in March and anxiety scores are at their highest since April 2020, indicating that there are real struggles with mental health right now. A vision document published by a coalition of Scottish residential outdoor centres and interested groups from the Scouts, Youth Think Scotland and Girl Guiding Scotland to Ramblers Scotland, Children First and the Association of Head Teachers and Deputies said the move is more important than ever as the impact of COVID-19 has hit young people hard. It says, emerging from the devastating effects of the global pandemic, our children and young people need opportunities to break free from the constraints they have faced. Residential outdoor learning gives young people the chance to take part in challenge and adventure and by connecting meaningfully with nature while also supporting pupil and school recovery. Residential outdoor education contributes to narrowing the attainment gap in our society. Our specialist outdoor educators create spaces for our children to build stronger relationships, develop resilience and reimagine society that is stronger and fairer, one that truly values nature and our environment and one that is sustainable to benefit future generations. Scouts Scotland President Molly Hughes, who in 2017 broke the world record for becoming the youngest woman to climb both sides of Mount Everest and in 2020 became the youngest woman to ski solo to the South Pole, said the residential outdoor education has never been more important for young people. She said the chance to be away from home, experiencing the great outdoors with all of its challenges and rewards is invaluable to their development. At a time where the lives of young people have been shaped by staying at home to protect their communities, it is crucial that we create future opportunities that give them a chance to spread their wings, 
foster confidence and resilience, build new friendships and develop an attachment and respect for nature. This is unachievable in any other environment. The vision paper has cross-party support from Scottish Conservatives, MSP Liz Smith, Alison Johnston of the Scottish Greens, former Scottish Labour Party leader Ian Gray, SNP MSP Fulton McGregor and Scottish Liberal Democrat MSP Liam MacArthur. Mr Gray, a former teacher, said Scottish Labour welcome this bold and ambitious plan for the next decade of outdoor residential education in Scotland and recognise just how vital learning in the outdoors is to providing young people with a wide a range of experiences as possible, strengthening their potential and increasing learning opportunities. The next generation of young people who have had their education and learning impacted by COVID-19 related lockdowns, homeschooling and remote learning need access to outdoor education opportunities more than ever. All the evidence shows that outdoor learning can help close the poverty-related attainment gap and provide significant educational, health and well-being, social and personal development benefits. This vision sets out all the reasons why outdoor residential education matters and why all levels of government in Scotland need to provide the adequate support and resources the sector needs to deliver for the next generation of young people. It comes as Scotland's national walking charity, Paths for All, launched a six-week Walking with Nature campaign to help people enjoy and appreciate the natural environment on their daily walks to ease anxieties and boost mental and physical well-being. An online campaign hub will help people understand how to connect and enjoy nature whilst providing a variety of ideas, activities and information designed to motivate everyone to get outdoors. Its action comes after a report published by Scottish Government agency NatureScot found an increased proportion of the population reported health and well-being benefits from time spent outdoors connecting with nature during lockdown. Some 70% indicated their outdoor visits and engagement with nature between August to September helped them to de-stress, relax and unwind, which is up from 63% in March to May. Ian Findlay, Chief Officer at Paths for All, said all too often when people go out walking they are still attached to their phone and forget to take in the surroundings that we are graced with in Scotland. We hope this campaign will help people unwind and begin to enjoy the small and simple things in life like spotting a wild animal, hearing a new noise or just generally feeling relaxed when out in the fresh air. We believe by encouraging people to walk every day they will experience many positive physical, social and mental health benefits and in turn we will move forward from this pandemic as a healthier, greener, safer and happier nation. This article is by Martin Williams.
The Herald, Wednesday the 17th of February 2021. News. SNP under fire for savage cuts to farming climate funding. This article is by David Ball. The SNP has come under fire for savage and premature cuts to funding to help farmers tackle the climate emergency. In the draft Scottish Government budget, the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme, AECS, budget is set to be cut from £42.7 million to £34.2 million as farmers mitigate the impacts of Brexit. The fund supports nature and climate-friendly farming methods on farms and crofts across Scotland. Agriculture pollution accounts for around one quarter of Scotland's total carbon emissions, with ministers aiming to reduce the sector's impact from 7 meat CO2e in 2020 to 5.3 meat CO2e by 2032. Chris Stark, the Chief Executive of Statutory Advisors, the Committee on Climate Change, CCC, previously told MSPs that in Scotland the agricultural sector has not been contributing to reductions in emissions so far. Rural Economy Secretary Fergus Ewing faced a backlash from Labour and Conservative MSPs during an appearance in front of Holyrood's Rural Economy and Connectivity Committee. But Mr Ewing insisted that responsibility for any reduction to funding should rest with the UK government, which he says has cut money by £170 million over the next four years. The existing levels of AECS funding have previously faced criticism from environmental groups. Scottish Environmental Link has warned that unless there is a significant increase in the AECS budget beyond previous levels, the prospect of both enabling those with current agreements to continue environmental management and to expand its reach to bring more land under nature and climate-friendly management is negligible. Scottish Labour Rural Economy Spokesperson Colin Smythe asked Mr Ewing why have you made a choice to cut that particular budget, particularly at a time we face a climate and nature emergency? He added, surely it's premature to make such a savage cut and change the cap when we still have no idea what your plans are for agricultural support at the end of the transition period. Speaking after the meeting, Mr Smythe added, this cut makes a mockery of the SNP's claim to be serious about climate change. It takes agri-environment funding down to just 6% of the total farm support, leading to the axing of many initiatives by farmers and crofters to protect the environment. It will have devastating consequences for many of Scotland's precious species and habitats and hamper our efforts to tackle climate change. The lack of leadership from the SNP government 
on what post-Brexit agricultural support will look like in Scotland means farmers and crofters are being left in the dark over what the future holds and, as a result, cannot plan properly. But what is becoming clear is that those in the sector who want to play their part through nature and climate-friendly farming won't get the backing they need from the SNP government. But the Cabinet Secretary said his government has carried forward spend from the previous programme. He added, We have worked with Nature Scott in order to deliver key components of the scheme. If you look at the spending overall, if you take account of the greening payments and the forestry payments and the other payments, around one third of the total expenditure can be attributed to environmental schemes. It's wrong to think in silos here. We are doing more. Mr Ewing warned that given the UK government is cutting unilaterally the devolved budgets of the administrations by £170 million, there will be less money to be spent on the environment. Conservative Rural Economy spokesperson Jamie Halcrow-Johnson said that the level of funding being provided by the Scottish Government can't be adequate if you're being forced to make cuts. He added, The simple fact is that the United Kingdom Government has maintained funding levels, yet cuts have been made to the agri-environmental schemes. This is surely about priorities and the priorities that you make and you've chosen to make. The Scottish Government have made a choice to cut them back and to look at other schemes or other funding. That is a policy choice of the Scottish Government. Had it simply been a funding issue, we could recognise that, but the investment has gone into other areas. But Mr Ewing claimed that it was down to less funding from Westminster being allocated, adding that the UK Government has moved back on public commitments that farmers and crofters would not be worse off. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Monday the 22nd of February 2021. News. This morning boost for Highland Soap Company after firm's starring role on daytime TV. This article is by Deborah Anderson. A Highland Soap Company is enjoying a sales boost after a link-up with ITV's This Morning show has raised its profile. After the products were discovered by one of the daytime show's bosses during a visit to the Highland Soap Company's Pit Lockery store, they were approached and asked if they could supply their products for the show's branded goodie bags, which are given away to competition winners. Presenters Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby showed viewers the new additions to the goodie bag on air on Monday, which included Scottish honeysuckle soap and Hebridean sea salt hand sanitizer. And this is not the first time the Fort William-based company has been given a mention on the show. Soap company bosses were shocked to learn that they had been featured on a section on the best winter hand sanitizers. Archie MacDonald, co-owner and director, said we wrote to thank them for featuring us and it transpired one of their team 
discovered our products in our little shop in Pitlochry in the Highlands and introduced it to their studio. It was reviewed on air and Holly Willoughby loved the Highland lavender but Philip Schofield said ooh to the whiskey and honey and wanted to lick his hands. They got in touch again wanting to place an order of wild Scottish raspberry hand sanitizer for their office. It then led to them asking if we would supply this morning branded products for their goodie bags. The exposure is fantastic in raising our profile and it is great they are supportive of small businesses. Online orders soared after the company's first mention on the show and already Mr McDonald says they are seeing increased activity on their website. I checked the site and orders within half an hour of us being featured and already I could see there was a spike, he added. The first time we were mentioned, we had never had a day like it and sold hundreds of bottles of sanitizer in one day. Founded 20 years ago by Emma Parton and is the only firm in the UK to incorporate bog myrtle essential oil into its products, a plant which has been used for centuries to treat skin conditions and is also said to repel midges. Mr MacDonald came on board and the firm, which also produces luxury candles, has experienced rapid growth over the past two years. Last year, the family-run brand opened a new multi-million pound factory and visitor centre in Loch Aber. It is modelled on a whisky distillery visitor centre, allowing customers to see how the products are made. The site for the company's new factory and visitor centre, which opened in December, has personal significance for Mr MacDonald. While it was more recently a social club used by employees, at the former British aluminium factory, his ancestor, a distiller known as Long John, was a tenant farmer there 200 years ago. The company has high hopes for this year and is looking to open more shops. Just before lockdown last year, we attended a trade show in Birmingham and received orders off the back of that, which was good timing for us, added Mr MacDonald. We are looking to expand and would consider opening more outlets later this year. One of our dream locations would be on Edinburgh's Royal Mile. This article is by Deborah Anderson. The Herald, Thursday the 18th of February 2021. News. University of Glasgow to bring in respect advisors as half of its ethnic minority students report racial harassment. This article is by Martin Williams. The University of Glasgow is to bring in new respect advisors after issuing an apology over racism. Its own survey found that half of all ethnic minority students reported being harassed between two and five times since beginning studies. Their report found the survey results contrasted to the handful of racial harassment cases captured by university processes. The analysis found there was a reluctance to report such harassment because of a lack of confidence that such incidents would be treated seriously, combined with a fear of reprisals from fellow students and staff. 
Students found that existing support advisors were white and according to the report, may not have the anti-racist literacy to understand the significance and force of microaggression and incivility when carried on a persistent basis. More than a quarter of ethnic minority students who took part in the survey say the University of Glasgow has a serious problem with racism. The attacks range from racist name-calling to what described as microaggressions aimed at willfully excluding ethnic minority students. Ten said they or a fellow student had been subject to racist violence while studying at the university. Around four in ten of black students believed the university was either very poor or poor at combating racial harassment compared to around 30% of Asians. But the investigation found that racism was also found among staff. In what was described as a distressing episode, an ethnic minority staff member was called a black bastard by a fellow colleague. When the minority staff member reported the incident to their line manager, the response was to ask, what did you do to make her say that? Of 20 ethnic minority staff questioned, nearly all reported being subjected to some form of racial harassment. The university has now launched an action plan to tackle racism and racist incidents on campus grounds as part of its efforts to address racial inequality. And that involves recruiting new respect advisors to ensure ethnic diversity. They can provide confidential, impartial one-to-one advice with issues of racial harassment. Anti-racist and cultural awareness training is to be given to all staff, prioritising those involved in staff or student investigation processes. The Glasgow investigation was launched as a direct response to a 2019 Equality and Human Rights Commission report which uncovered widespread evidence of racial harassment on university campuses. In the wake of the Understanding Racism, Transforming University Cultures report, Professor Sir Anton Muscatelli, Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Glasgow said, the report is a very difficult read and outlines challenging experiences of racism or racial injustice. Professor Muscatelli, who is chairman of the University's Equality and Diversity Strategy Committee and commissioned the investigation into student and staff experiences of racism, added, On behalf of the University of Glasgow, I want to apologise unreservedly to my colleagues and our students who have been impacted by racism or racial injustice while working or studying here. I want to also recognise the detrimental impact these experiences have had on inclusion, your well-being and your sense of belonging for a university which prides itself on its values and reputation. This is unacceptable. Former University of Glasgow Rector Emer Anwar condemned the failures of senior management to deal with racism and discrimination on campus saying it was institutionally racist. 
Mr. Anwar said that during his three years as rector, he had raised concerns about the racism and discrimination faced by students and staff, yet there was little or no action taken and more than often than not, my experience was one of abject denial. He added, our minority ethnic staff have long complained of being ignored, bullied or excluded because of their race. Let me be blunt, the University of Glasgow is institutionally racist and that can be seen on so many levels including the lack of diversity on staff. The university court of which I was the president of, as the rector, had over 50 lay members but I was the only person of colour. I raised this at the very first court meeting. Three years later it had not changed. In my time as rector, Horrific allegations were brought to me, but sadly, despite the support of the principal, staff and students involved had little confidence in the system, protecting them from reprisals. Many of those students suffered from mental health breakdowns, failed exams and desperately hung on to get their qualifications, never ever to return because of their experience. How barbaric to find in this report that a staff member called a black bastard on complaining to their line manager is asked what they did to make that person say that. I heard a lot worse. I have repeatedly complained of the treatment of international students as cash cows, in particular our Chinese students, with little success at including them at the heart of our university. I am deeply saddened at reading this report. As a young student in 1988-89, I led the campaign to expose racism at the Glasgow Dental School, which ultimately led to anonymous marking in all faculties. I had hoped that in the three decades that would have passed, that this great university would have made racism a relic of the past. Sadly, it seems not. The study concluded there was a need to reconceive the university as an engine for delivering racial equality to our staff and students. It said this will require us to reordinate our underlying presupposition towards these questions from one underpinned by colour blindness to one informed by a proactive commitment to deliver racial equality. Mr Muscatelli added while tackling racism is a problem that extends far beyond the University of Glasgow. Following the 2019 EHRC report, we resolved to act and launched a major review of our policies and procedures concerning racial harassment. We are determined to use this report as a catalyst to effect change. Already through the university's leadership team, in collaboration with colleagues and students, we have begun to implement the report's action plan. We hope that all our staff and students will join us as active participants in driving through these necessary changes. While we recognise that tackling racism remains a problem for society at large, to be the institution we aspire to be, the University is clear that we must act and act decisively. This report and the accompanying action plan offers us a way forward to deliver real and meaningful change. This article is by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald, 18th of February 2021.
Scotland should have Champions League group stage spot guaranteed, insists European football chief James Kearney. European football chief Lars Christer Olsen has argued that the winners of the Scottish Premiership should be guaranteed a place in the group stages of the Champions League every season. UEFA, European football's governing body, are currently in discussions over a change in format to the continent's Premier Club competition to be implemented by 2024. The Swiss model set up is believed to be favoured by UEFA, which would see an additional three spots open up in the Champions League. And Olsen, who served as chief executive of UEFA between 2003 and 2007, thinks that any shake-up must prioritise domestic champions over clubs from the so-called Big Five leagues in England, France, Germany, Italy and Spain. Olsen said, We think the three extra positions should be allocated in a way that more associations can be represented in the Champions League. It must not be given to one of the Big Five associations. We are also of the opinion that the so-called country cap of the Champions League should stay at maximum five teams from the same association. We actually prefer champions from Scotland, Denmark or Switzerland to qualify, rather than team number six from England or Spain. Recorded from the Herald, 17th of February 2021. Scottish FA appoint Andrew Phillips as compliance officer to succeed Claire White. Joshua Barry. The Scottish FA have appointed Andrew Phillips as their new compliance officer. Phillips will begin his new role on Monday, March 1st and replaces Claire White in the job. White joined the association in 2018 when she replaced Tony McLennan. He said he intends to ensure the balance of coverage and commentary is focused on the football in this role. Phillips joins the Scottish FA from Jones White Law where he worked in criminal and regulatory defence. He is also dual qualified, having passed the New York bar exam. Speaking to the Scottish FA following the announcement of his appointment, Phillips said, I have spent the majority of my legal career working in criminal and regulatory defence, so becoming compliance officer is a fantastic opportunity for me to combine my professional expertise with my passion for football. Scottish football is tremendously entertaining and plays a huge part in the lives of many people. My aim is to ensure that the balance of coverage and commentary is focused on the football. To achieve that requires engagement across the game and also externally and it's a challenge I very much look forward to undertaking. Ian Maxwell, Scottish FA Chief Executive added, The compliance officer position plays a vital role within our game. Andrew's work within the legal profession, as well as his knowledge and understanding of football, made him the right candidate. You are listening to the Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday, 18th February 2021. Issue of the day. Lockdown's vending machine rise. An article by Maureen Sugden, reporter. In the pre-coronavirus world, they were features of office kitchens and leisure centres that we gave scant thought to. Now, as retailers endeavour to find ways around lockdowns, vending machines are on the rise around the world, selling everything from milk to books. Cola, chocolate bars and crisps are so yesterday. They were the main staple of vending machines as we knew them, of course. But the pandemic and ensuing restrictions has forced retailers and food and drink producers to think outside the box about how to connect with customers. 
milk machines. A growing number of UK farms are now selling produce via vending machines in a bid to reach consumers directly during lockdown life. One farm in Gloucestershire, Leonard Stanley Farm, sells not only free-range milk, but it has a cheese vending machine, selling cheeses made on site. Open 24-7, the vending machine, taking cash and cards, sells Godsall's cheese, including cheddar, smoked and chilli cheeses. Eggs. The egg shed in Western Hertfordshire has a new egg vending machine and also sells its own honey made on the local farm as well, saying, the eggs are fresh straight from the farm to the vending machine. Pasta. Stellina Pizzeria in Arlington, Virginia in the US has debuted its new pasta vending machine outside its eatery, selling items such as the chef's own pasta kits, jars of homemade sauces, fresh pasta, and in case aspiring cooks need a helping hand, the machine's LED screen flashes up cooking instructions you can take a picture of with your phone whilst placing your order. Cupcakes. Just last week, Australian outlet The Mason Baker in Brisbane unveiled its cupcake ATM, offering six different cupcakes in a jar-style sweet treats, including strawberries and cream and salted caramel flavours. It is stocked every Friday and Saturday and was praised online as a socially distanced method of getting dessert. Books. Educators in Texas have unveiled book vending machines. Each week, every teacher picks a student who gets a golden ticket for reaching their reading goals, which is swapped for a coin for the machine. The school's principal said the kids get a kick out of their book being spat out of a machine. And of course, Covid. Vending machines offering face masks, gloves and hand sanitizers have become common features, particularly at airports nowadays, while machines selling Covid test kits are now springing up in major cities across the US. Health firm Wellness for Humanity has announced plans to roll out the machines that will dispense saliva and rapid antigen tests with prices ranging from $130 to $149. Back in the day, it all began with postcards. The first modern coin-operated vending machines date back to London in the early 1880s, dispensing postcards. Proving so popular, they soon spread to feature in railway stations and post offices countrywide. America's first vending machine sold gum, on New York City train platforms in 1888. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 22nd Feb 2021. Issue of the day, radio's friendly voice in lockdown. An article by Maureen Sugden, reporter. It is 100 years since the first wireless radio broadcast took place in the UK. And despite the raft of other entertainment possibilities at hand now, from streaming to podcasts, research shows more people than ever are tuning into the airwaves. And it's not just the oldies. It's actually the younger audience who are tuning in more to the radio. According to a survey carried out for digital radio manufacturer Pure, 62% of 18 to 34 year olds say they are listening to the radio more than they were pre-pandemic. 
Overall, millions more Brits have turned to the radio since the pandemic took hold, saying they regard it as a trusted source of news and a way to get instant information they think they can rely on. A shout-out goes to Scotland's own Ken Bruce, the Glasgow-born DJ who began his broadcasting career in hospital radio and has been on Radio 2 since 1980, presents a mid-morning show Monday to Friday, which is the most listened to radio show in the UK, with nearly 8.5 million listeners tuning in. And Bruce, who turned 70 earlier this month, was named Britain's favourite radio presenter in the Pure Poll. As to his own success... He said last year that escapism is a big part of keeping people feeling right during this and I think we provide a certain amount of that, a chance to put the worries of the world to one side. Other favourites? Capital Radio's Roman Kemp took second place with BBC Radio 2's Zoe Ball in third, Chris Evans in fourth and Jeremy Vine in fifth. Research carried out by digital radio manufacturer Pure also shows it's largely to do with home working as well. More than a third of Brits surveyed said home working had allowed them to listen to the radio more and more than a fifth listening while having breakfast or during their actual workday. Mood Mums The Telegraph reported last week that BBC documents reveal Radio 2 executives have been trying to draw a specific demographic of listener referred to as mood mums. Women aged 35 to 44 who are time poor, family orientated, put children first and are tight for money, who are presently big listeners of commercial stations, heart, smooth and magic. Boom. Boom Radio launched last week billing itself as a new radio station for an adventurous generation, available on computers, tablets, smart speakers and DAB in many parts of the UK. The station says it is run by baby boomers for baby boomers, targeting listeners born between 1945 and 1963, saying they have been abandoned by mainstream radio. Meanwhile, local radio is playing a key role. A survey of 2,000 Brits also found that more than a fifth listened to local stations to enjoy some sort of companionship throughout the day and to feel connected to their local area, while a quarter listened to talk radio for a friendly voice and company whilst working from home. Peter Ogley, CEO of Pure, said... Radio has never been so important in keeping us connected with the wider community and further, and to keep us feeling supported and comforted. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Tuesday 23rd February 2021. Meat production can be more sustainable and ethical than veganism. An article by Claire Taylor, columnist. Offshoring our carbon footprint in the midst of a climate emergency is the last thing Scotland wants to be doing, so it is time to start thinking more wisely about our food choices. This past weekend I took part in a debate organised by Edinburgh University's Conscious Change Society, arguing for the motion 
A diet including Scottish livestock products can be more sustainable and ethical than veganism. The argument made that Scottish farmers should stop raising livestock for meat production and instead turn all our grazing land over to arable production, wildflower meadows and forests is utter nonsense. There are a number of fundamental flaws in this argument. One being that 98% of British households consume meat and even if livestock production were to stop, demand for meat would not. This demand would have to be met by importing meat from abroad which wouldn't sit well with our ambitious climate change targets. Nor with the fact that we would have no say over the animal welfare standards in which these animals are reared and slaughtered. Secondly, over 80% of Scottish farmland is not suitable for growing cereals and vegetables due to the topography and nature of our terrain but is perfectly suited to grazing livestock which can turn rough grassland into delicious nutrient-dense protein. A much higher demand for a vegan diet could not be met by local Scottish farming systems and would lead to higher dependency on imports. Thirdly, the suggestion of removing livestock from our lands fails to recognise the invaluable role grazing ruminants play in sequestering carbon in the soil, preventing it from escaping into the atmosphere. Grazing livestock is also critical for building back organic matter into our soils, restoring wildlife habitats and boosting biodiversity. RSPB and other nature organisations have stated that grazing animals are essential for sustaining healthy wildlife populations. Fourthly, Scottish livestock farmers play an invaluable role in looking after our iconic landscapes, which all of us have been enjoying more than ever over the last year. With international flights grounded, Scotland's hills and upland areas have been refound by many and enjoyed. What they have been enjoying is some of the most beautiful vistas in the world. But they are not wild landscapes. They are preserved and managed by countryside custodians grazing their livestock. Lastly, livestock farming plays a crucial role in supporting rural areas and the most fragile communities. Keeping the flow of money in these parts of Scotland and providing vital job opportunities. Farming and crofting are integral to the social fabric of rural Scotland and has been a part of our culture and heritage for thousands of years. It is no secret that livestock production contributes to greenhouse gas emissions, contributing to 5% of total UK emissions. But in recent years, other major GHG contributors like food waste, fast fashion, energy and transport seem to have gotten off the hook. It seems it is easier to put a pitchfork into the farming industry than it is to stab a needle into haute couture. Mainstream media has a lot to answer for by sensationalising debates around meat consumption and its role in climate change. Highlighting agriculture as a carbon sink just isn't sexy. It doesn't sell newspapers despite being the factual and take-home message which many members of the public should and need to hear. We too happily latch on to stop eating red meat to save the planet 
as we'd much rather make a dietary switch than take one less holiday abroad or cut down on our ASOS deliveries. Too often we blindly read reports in the media or posts by the anti-farming movement which fail to account for the global differences in livestock production. Intensive-style feedlots which fatten their livestock with grain, quickened by means of a hormone injection, couldn't be a further cry from farming in Scotland. Livestock here are mostly reared extensively on grass-fed diets, weather permitting, and farmers have to follow very strict animal welfare regulations or face severe consequences. Scotland's farmers are constantly looking at ways to improve their carbon footprint through improving livestock nutrition, restoring soil health, exploring agroforestry opportunities, reducing fertiliser use, planting hedgerows to support local wildlife populations. The list goes on. From 1990 to 2017, Scottish agriculture decreased its greenhouse gas emissions by 29%, and is continuing to work hard to pioneer new technologies which will potentially decrease methane emissions and increase carbon capture in the extensive grass areas of Scotland. The industry is also constantly improving animal welfare regulations in regard to how animals are reared and slaughtered, as well as being more transparent with its consumers. New innovations around DNA technology actually allow consumers to trace the origin of all meat back to the animal and farm it was raised on. This won't just apply to supermarket purchases, but in the food service sector too, which has often escaped the scrutiny of a rigorous audit, which would accredit what it says on the menu. The goal is to always be accountable to consumers and be more transparent. There is nothing to be gained from shying away from telling the public the true story of livestock production, from farm to fork, which includes slaughter. The fact of the matter is, demand for meat isn't going to disappear. So it is important that we are constantly scrutinising and improving animal welfare regulations, and that livestock farmers are held accountable for their actions by the public. During the pandemic, there has been a huge drive towards reconnecting with where our food comes from as a result of the bi-local revolution. Long term, it is important that more farmers throw open their doors to the public and continue these vital conversations with their customers. We can't narrowly look at meat production without recognising the whole host of benefits it brings to wider society. Through eating a balanced diet, which includes locally sourced, high-quality, high-welfare meat, you can be confident that you are making not only an ethical and sustainable choice, but one that delivers huge benefits to the wider Scottish society. Claire Taylor is the Scottish Farmers Political Affairs Editor. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 19th February 2021. Safeguarding access to food without compromising dignity. An article by Rachel Brown, Scottish Development Worker for Your Local Pantry. How do we safeguard food access without compromising on dignity? Charities and community groups have wrestled with that question throughout the past decade of austerity, and then most recently and acutely during the COVID-19 lockdowns. 
Perhaps now we have an answer. In a compassionate society, it should be a given that everyone will have access to a choice of good food, free from anxiety and stigma. Yet achieving that has often proved difficult. We all know we need government action across a raft of areas to ensure all household incomes are adequate to cover living costs. But while we press for that, we also need dignified responses on the ground, here and now, to loosen the grip of poverty. One model, now proving particularly effective, is the Your Local Pantry approach. In the past year, the number of shops in the network has trebled from 14 to 42 across the UK. One of the areas of fastest growth has been Edinburgh, which began 2020 with no pantries, but which now has four, serving more than 1,400 people and with three more close to opening. The pantry model is simple. Anyone who lives in a neighbourhood served by one can join. Members pay a small weekly subscription of a few pounds and in return they can choose around 20 to 25 pounds a week of groceries from the wide and varied stock on the shelves. It's a shop in all but name but members can save the best part of £1,000 a year compared to supermarket prices. Stock is supplied through the food redistribution charity Fairshare and local suppliers in each area. Most members initially join to save money, but the benefits thereafter are far broader. Our new impact report found that 76% of members reported improved mental health and 69% reported improved physical health. 70% felt more connected to their community and 57% had made new friends. Many said that during the lockdowns in particular, pantries were vital in ensuring access to food and friendship. One member of the Fresh Start Pantry in Edinburgh told us, it brings it all back to the community and feels like we are shopping local. I prefer this to shopping at a supermarket. Another said, being a member has allowed my family to save money and buy more fresh meat that is halal as they are Muslim and find it difficult to afford halal meat. Pantries have proliferated because organisations have seen and want to emulate the difference they make, but also because we've all been reminded in this pandemic of the importance of community and mutual support for one another. Local neighbourhoods can and should be at the forefront of developing practical and sustainable responses to the pandemic and setting up a dynamic, inclusive, community-focused project like a pantry is the perfect way to start. Councils, school trusts, churches, a GP surgery and numerous grassroots groups have embraced the approach and over the next five to ten years our goal is to support the doubling of the network, building dignity, choice and hope for thousands more people. If we can do that then we are well on the way to having a better, stronger society where nobody is cut adrift or neglected. You are listening to the Health Scotland recorded on Wednesday 17th February 2021.
why England could be Nicola Sturgeon's best ally in breaking up Britain. An opinion article by Ian McWhirter, columnist. England awakes. The dog has finally barked, we're told. The elephant has stirred. Choose your metaphor. The English question, rather than the Scottish one, is now the issue du jour in metropolitan thinking circles. England is on the march. Nick Timothy, Theresa May's former Chief of Staff, tells the Daily Telegraph that the Scottish question won't go away until the English one is answered. It is how Britain ends, according to the former Newsnight presenter, Gavin Esler, in a new book of that name which claims the UK cannot survive the rebirth of English nationalism. The former Telegraph editor, Sir Max Hastings, says... So what? Let the land of haggis and bagpipes depart. Given that the English have most of the people and the wealth, he wrote this week in a provocative Bloomberg article, there is no logical reason why future England should cut any slighter figure on the world. We have heard sentiments like that before, of course. But this is not just the formulation of revanchist Tory backbenchers sounding off about the jocks. There does seem to be a genuine revival, or perhaps a rehabilitation, of English national identity. A new book, Englishness, to be published next month by Professor Elsa Anderson of Edinburgh University, an authority on regions and nations, will argue that English nationalism is now becoming the driving force in UK politics. This isn't the old sentimental British nationalism of Dunkirk spirit and the Union flag, but a consciously political nationalism, based on a growing sense of English exceptionalism. The genie is finally out of the bottle. So what should Scots think about this? And what specifically should Scottish nationalists think about English nationalism? In a sense, it is a vindication of the SNP's unstated policy, which has been to discreetly exacerbate friction between Scotland and the rest of the UK, the better to ensure its disintegration. Brexit, spending and immigration are all boundary issues. Nicola Sturgeon's ruminations on closing the border with England during lockdown is partly about preventing the spread of new variants of COVID-19. But it is also to emphasise that a national border exists. So on the face of it, the SNP should be cheering the revival of its English nationalist doppelganger. What could be better than a mass movement of populists waving the cross of St George and demanding to get shot of Scotland once and for all? Except this is not quite what is happening. For the SNP, English nationalism is always bad in the same way that Scottish nationalism is always good. Ours is about being kind and progressive. Theirs is about football hooliganism and racism. This demonisation of English nationalism has certainly worked in the past but it might be that a thinking man's nationalism is breaking through the image of boot boys and belligerents. At any rate, Nick Timothy and Gavin Esler, neither of them ethnic nationalists, are agreed that English nationalism cannot and should not be ignored.
they are both calling for a new constitutional settlement, which would recognise legitimate demands for English self-government, for English home rule. This would include an English parliament. We have not heard this before because English intellectuals in the past have disliked English nationalism almost as much as Mistersian does. The only nationalism they recognised was the passive, inclusive British patriotism of George Orwell's wartime propaganda. Now, perhaps, political English nationalism is being brought in from the cold, where it coexisted with the BNP and the English Defence League. Timothy and Esla come from very different political backgrounds. Timothy is a Tory Brexiter. Esla, a liberal left Remainer. They disagree on just about everything except the English question. The new constitutional settlement Timothy envisages is very radical indeed and avoids the diversion of unwanted English regionalism. That which needs to be done together would be reserved for the federal government and parliament, he writes. Everything else, including the ability to determine almost all taxes, would be left to the four national governments and parliaments. Esler agrees that building on our existing quasi-federal structure is the obvious way to proceed. Elements he envisages involve a Senate, PR and an England-only Parliament. This is not a million miles from what was proposed by the 2013 Independence White Paper drafted largely by Miss Sturgeon. That was not a blueprint for separatism, as claimed by Better Together, but a form of federalism, or confederalism, which kept Scotland closely tied to a new reformed United Kingdom. It involved a common currency, borderless trade, common regulatory standards, and retention of key UK institutions like the Crown, BBC, and defence, minus Trident, it was independence in the UK. Esler draws the comparison with the Yes campaign explicitly. He laments the failure of the UK parties to realise, back in 2014, that they were rejecting a viable route to precisely what they wanted to retain, a United Kingdom. Instead, we had the nonsense of George Osborne, saying Scots would not be allowed to use the pound, Ed Ball saying Labour would erect border posts, and the attempt by Better Together supporters to portray the Yes campaign as some kind of Caledonian National Front. Of course, the 2014 offer is more difficult now with Britain out of the EU. A hard border seems pretty much inevitable after Scottish independence and that is something hardline nationalists will have to accept. But this doesn't mean that Miss Sturgeon should ignore the call for a new constitutional settlement here and now. What is there to lose? It could lead to a United Kingdom as a union of essentially free states working together, only where necessary. No one in their right minds wants a hard border in the UK. Mind you, it is a tall order. I'm not sure English voters are really prepared for a federal government and years of constitutional wrangling. But if this is driven by a Leave-style popular movement for an English parliament, 
rather than just by politicians trying to buy off Scots with phony federalism, it could work. Miss Sturgeon should welcome this new English nationalism with open arms. It could be that England is now her best ally in breaking up Britain. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 17th of February 2021. Jackie Kay on Bessie Smith by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. When she was 12 years old, growing up in a small semi-detached wimpy house in Glasgow, Scots macker Jackie Kay was given the album Bessie Smith, Any Woman's Blues by her blues-loving dad. A double album, in fact, with Smith's face on both sides. It was like a two-sided coin, Kay recalls now, the happy face and the sorrowful one. I just found the album cover fascinating. It was to spark a lifetime-long obsession with Smith and the music she made. Hearing her voice and hearing those songs, I just got drawn into the world of those blues. Kay grew to adore the music as much as her dad. She still does. I love the raunchy wildness of the blues. I love the fact that they don't shy away from anything, from revenge to redemption. And Bessie Smith was her gateway drug. Bessie Smith's story is the story of 20th century America, Kay reckons. Or at least the first part of it. Born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1894, Smith's story encompasses the Roaring Twenties, the huge burst of energy that was the Harlem Renaissance, the Wall Street crash and the 1930s depression. For a while she was the richest black woman in America, rich enough to buy her own custom-built train carriage to travel around in, before seeing her success fade away. She was only 43 when she died in a car accident in 1937. An inspiration for Janis Joplin, Smith was a self-made woman who sang raucous, raunchy blues songs, slept with men and women and stood up to the Ku Klux Klan. And yet she married a man, Jack G, her second husband, who was controlling and violent towards her and continued to be controlling of her reputation after her death. Kay herself grew up to be a poet and a writer. In 1997 she wrote a book about her favourite blues singer, one that celebrated her artistry and told the sometimes tragic story of her life. Published in a small independent imprint, only a thousand copies were ever printed. I never got the feeling that it had been published. I never met anyone that had read it, Kay admits. Now, however, it's about to be republished with a new introduction by Faber and Faber. Its time has come, Kay believes. It feels like it's even more timely now with everything that has happened in the last year with Black Lives Matter. What was it about Bessie Smith that made such an impression on you? I think she's simply the best. I think all the blues singers at the time, Cara Smith, Ma Rainey, Ethel Waters, would have acknowledged that she was the queen of the blues, her tempo, her timing, her understanding of the blues. She wrote a lot of her own blues. Ma Rainey taught her a lot of the ropes, but Bessie was technically, and in every which way, better than any of her contemporaries. And I think Bessie's life captures us. Alas, we all do love a tragic death. We all th like to think, what would have happened if someone had lived longer? From the Janis Joplins, to the Bessie Smiths, to the Amy Winehouses, to the Robert Burns, we're constantly left with the question, what if? And perhaps we can carry them on in exchange for the life they didn't live. Perhaps it's a kind of bargain that humankind makes. As a 12-year-old, you wouldn't have understood a lot of what Bessie Smith was singing about. Take a libidinous song like Kitchen Man, for example. When she sang about the Kitchen Man's jelly roll, did you know what she meant? I definitely didn't. I just thought it was about an actual man bringing her nice things to eat. I imagined him with a big tall chef's hat on. 
I loved the blues because they were completely out with my ken. I didn't know the kind of men she was writing about, and I kept trying to equate them to my suburban neighbourhood, trying to work out which one was no doggone good. You say in your book that as a young black girl living in Glasgow you concocted an imaginary black family for yourself and Bessie was part of it. I did. I had quite a big extended black family. I kept adding different folk to it. Living or dead, actually. Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Angela Davis. They would just be black people I found out about because there weren't many black people on the television. I don't even think Trevor MacDonald was on then. The nurse in the BBC soap opera Angels was the only one I remember vividly. And whenever there was a person of any colour in the television, people would compare you to them. People would stop me in the street in Glasgow and ask me if I was on Angels, even though I was a completely different age. Around Wimbledon time, people would stop me and say, Are you related to Yvonne Goolagong? Or would sometimes ask me if I was Yvonne Goolagong, which seemed really bizarre to me. Going through Bishop Briggs Park, people would shout, Kunta Kinte, because Roots was on the television then. I remember being obsessed with that whole series, but the idea that people would watch a programme that was all about racism and slavery and then take to calling you Kunta Kinte, I couldn't quite get my head around that. So I made up this imaginary family as a sign of resistance, I suppose. You love Bessie Smith for her authenticity, but she was very theatrical as well. An old blues man in a porch and a filthy vest, that's supposed to be an authentic blues. But the blues woman would laugh at that. That's an inauthentic image pretending to be authentic. Bessie had a performer in her and liked her feathers and plumes and often liked dressing up as a man. She often wore men's suits and was a male impresario for some of her career. She felt like she could explore herself, her true self. We make too easy a division between what we think of as a costume and what we think of as real. There's the way that dressing up in costumes means you're getting closer to your imaginary self. I would argue that costumes can be and is real. It opens up areas of exploration rather than closes them down. When I go out and do gigs, I feel very much myself on the stage. In some ways I feel more myself on stage. Travelling in your own train carriage is as theatrical as it gets, to be fair. It was her brother Clarence's idea. She was lucky that she was rich enough to be able to afford that. She was the richest black woman in America at that time. I think she often cooked in her train. She was a really good cook, and she made special big southern stews that reminded her of a black home, so she was able to be completely herself. She never changed her working class self either. She never changed her speech patterns or her behaviour, and that I find really fascinating. She was working class royalty, really. The Blues Queens were the closest you would get to a black royal family but they did it in their own style, with their own dresses, their own way of presenting themselves, their own trains. They had so much autonomy. The train also was a boon for her love life. How cool, who wouldn't want their own love life in a moving train? I think that's what first attracted me to the idea of reading about her life. There was this book my friend gave me at 14 about this woman having sex with women and men, and I remember finding that really fascinating. It's difficult to square the image of this self-made, self-possessed, successful woman who could face down the clan and with the woman who became so controlled and abused by her second husband, Jack G. Yes, it is, and it's soul-destroying to think about it in depth. Sometimes he just gets under my skin, that husband of hers. It's despairing to think that a woman of that immense talent should have let herself be lumbered with this guy for all that time. Bessie herself was violent and self-destructive. She was a bit like the Amy Whitehouse of her day, and it was very frustrating for people who were close. 
All her friends and family at the time said she changed massively after meeting G. They didn't recognise her. Her spark had gone. It's what you hear if you listen to radio phone-ins about domestic violence. It's an uncomfortable question to ask because people always focus on the woman. Why did she stay? But they don't really focus on the question, why does a man behave like that? Which is a far more interesting question. A man who's with this talented, generous, loving woman, who buys him everything that he might need, who sends him off to spas when he gets a bit stressed, who has bought new cars. Why would a man like that want to throw her down the stairs and beat her up and terrorise everybody she works with? That's the question we should ask ourselves. But for some reason, no, we always ask about the woman. What do you think is Bessie's legacy? Well, her legacy is her music. You can find so much in those blues. There are more than 160 recorded songs. There's lots to keep returning to. Finding the joy in them, the lightness in them, as well as the despair. Her legacy is her artistry, because she was a real artist. But also her legacy is a kind of life that teaches us all a salutary lesson about what we should value. Because she had family who only liked her when she was rich. No well-known people came to her funeral, yet thousands of ordinary people came. I think her life teaches us that lesson in a Shakespearean way. Bessie Smith by Jackie Kay is published by Faber and Faber on Thursday, £9.99. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday, 18th of February 2021. New Elizabeth Barrett Browning Biography by Fiona Sampson Reviewed by Brian Morton. Two-Way Mirror, The Life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning by Fiona Sampson. Profile, £18.99. Review by Brian Morton. Virginia Woolf said, Fate has not been kind to Mrs Browning as a writer. Nobody reads her, nobody discusses her, nobody troubles to put her in her place. One might argue that Mrs Woolf wasn't very kind to her either. When she turned her mind to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, it was to write a biography of her dog Flush, and one wonders what, exactly, she means by her place. But the better part of a century later, her basic point is beyond argument. No one reads EBB now. No one reads poetry, whose public gamut starts with Armitage and ends with Zephaniah. Perhaps now and again some young swain hoiks, how do I love thee, let me count the ways, out of an online dictionary of quotations for Valentine's Day, but that's it. No one else was much kinder to her, two of the big beasts of modern criticism, both male obviously, almost entirely excluded her from the Oxford Anthology of English Literature. EBB, as she liked to be called, comes down to us as a round-faced hypochondriac and self-willed invalid. Stuck at home with unfulfillable ambitions, who eloped with one of the big beasts of Victorian poetry, Robert Browning, and then lived in his shadow for the rest of her life. Those same critics, Lionel Trilling and Harold Bloom, murmur sniffily that Mrs Browning's enthusiasms gave her husband much grief. An embarrassment then. It takes a biographer of Fiona Sampson's lateral brilliance to re-argue EBB's importance and to put her verse novel Aurora Lee, a kind of poetic autobiography, back where it belongs among the great works of the period. She does by very carefully framing not just the life which is far more vivid and complex than usually supposed, or than the awful The Barretts of Wimpole Street. You probably watched it half asleep after Sunday lunch once, when the world was black and white made out. Virginia Woolf said that what a woman writer needed was a room of her own. Elizabeth Barrett had one, which sounds ideal until you discover that she was confined in it into a crippling harness that was supposed to correct a spinal problem that may well have been something viral. 
It could even be that EBV's much-derided vapours were the result of something like long Covid, not hypochondria. So the health issues were real, and Samson is superb in how much EBV's work is in that overworked but valid feminist trope written on the body. Wolf actually said that if a woman were to write, she would also need money. The Milton Barretts had plenty of that, most of the time, but unfortunately it came tainted with slavery. The family had returned from Jamaica, leaving EBB with the disturbing illusion, and it was an illusion, that she was of mixed race. Browning called her his Portuguese, hence in part the title Sonnets from the Portuguese. The health and even the colour of the body she was writing with would have been problematic to Elizabeth. And then, from what sounds like a rural idyll, she was taken to London in a new set of gilded cages. Having spent her emerging years in strange, flirtatious communication with older men, all of them somehow modelled but different from her melancholy father, pompously correcting their Greek scansion, offering up her own early attempts for approval, she fell into a literary circle that allowed her to believe that she too could be a writer. She had admirers and detractors, supporters and gowlers, and they tended to be the same people. It takes a certain effort of will now to pick up Aurora Lee, but armed with Samson's complex portrait, with its multiple frames and mirror effects, it's possible not just to read Elizabeth Barrett Browning again, but more important, to let her read us. She has come suddenly up to date by Brian Morton. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 17th of February 2021. Paperbacks. Talking at the Gates by James Campbell. The Agency by William Gibson. The Wisdom of Psychopaths by Dr Kevin Dutton. By Alistair Mabbitt. Talking at the Gates. James Campbell. Polygon, £14.99. Aged just 14, James Baldwin became a preacher at the Fireside Pentecostal Assembly in Harlem, and his talent for oratory lived on in his writing, making him one of the most influential black voices of 20th century America. James Campbell, born in Glasgow in 1951, knew Baldwin for the last 10 years of the latter's life, and brings a fond personal touch to this biography of the compulsively sociable yet darkly introverted author, though he doesn't let friendship get in the way of solid criticism. Drawing and correspondence and interviews pouring over the FBI's file on him, brackets, Baldwin believed rightly he was under surveillance, close brackets, and examining his relationships with writers like Langston Hughes, Richard Wright and Norman Mailer, Campbell has produced a vivid, candid portrait of a fascinating man. This new edition comes with an introduction and acknowledging that Baldwin's politics and his intersectionality have left him ripe for rediscovery after many low-profile years. The Agency, William Gibson, Penguin, £8.99 Gibson, who introduced the world to the term cyberpunk 37 years ago, still feels impressively current. The Agency is the middle book of a trilogy which began with 2014's Peripheral taking place partly in the dystopian 2136 ruled by the Shady Klept, descendants of Russian oligarchs. Some Klept amuse themselves by employing quantum technology to communicate with the past and thus create alternate timelines. And it's Ainsley Lobier's job to prevent that happening, or deal with the consequences when it does. To avert a catastrophe, she reaches through time to app-test her verity and artificial intelligence Eunice in an alternate 2017 where Hillary Clinton is president, but which is heading for a nuclear apocalypse. As usual, Gibson's world-building is second to none, 
And if the agency lacks the freshness of his breakthrough novels, its themes and concerns resonate all the more strongly in a world that seems to have modelled itself on his visions. The Wisdom of Psychopaths Dr Kevin Dutton Arrow £10.99 It's becoming more widely recognised that psychopaths aren't just cold murderers but are spread throughout the population, flourishing particularly well in corporate environments, politics and finance. So Kevin Dutton's pop psychology exploration of the subject won't go short of readers. His breezy tone might grate after a while, but he's genuinely concerned that the way contemporary society rewards psychopathic behaviour might nudge more people in that direction. He has the secondary aim too of understanding his father, an East End market trader who displayed many of the same traits. Fascinated by their mental workings, he argues that society needs its share of unflappable surgeons, soldiers and bomb disposal experts, but he also visits Broadmoor to see where he can learn from murderers and conmen. Most interestingly, Dutton undergoes a procedure to deaden the emotion centres of his brain, allowing him temporarily to experience a state akin to the psychopathic mindset. By Alistair Mabbitt, Herald Scotland, recorded on Monday 22nd of February 2021. TV Preview Unforgotten stars Nicola Walker and Sanjeev Bhaskar on emotive storylines, new challenges and keeping secrets. By Herald Magazine some TV dramas never quite live up to the hype of their successful first series, but with Unforgotten, that is far from the case. The fourth series of the BAFTA-winning ITV crime drama, which is hitting our screens this month, is as gripping as ever. Written by Chris Lang, the six new episodes see DCI Cassie Stewart, Nicola Walker and DI Sonny Khan, Sanjeev Bhaskar, taking on another emotionally charged cold case murder. This time it's the discovery of a dismembered body in a scrap metal yard which the team believes has been stored in a domestic freezer for 30 years. Here we chat to Londoners Walker and Baskar to find out what is in store. Character Development This series Cassie is struggling with her personal life. Her son has moved back home and her father has early dementia. Meanwhile, having retired from the police force for her own sanity and well-being, she makes a gut-wrenching decision to return. It turns out she's not entitled to her full pension payment unless she completes her 30 years of service. One person who is certainly glad to have her back at work is her colleague and friend Sonny. One of the things that has really struck me about people commenting on the show from around the world has been the warmth towards the Cassie and Sonny relationship, notes 57-year-old Baskar, who is also a comedian having starred in sketch series Goodness Gracious Me and sitcom The Kumars at number 42. Meanwhile, in Sonny's personal life, we see him finding more stability as he moves in with his girlfriend. His home life has been quite chaotic as he puts all the, the organisation and care into his work life and very little into his personal life, and we see him attempting to redress that and balance this series. This time round, there are elements within the story which certainly are more emotionally challenging for me in a way that haven't been in previous series. Intense Scenes an interesting and important element of Unforgotten is how it explores Cassie's mental health struggles. It's something viewers have been extremely invested in. Last series, the detective had what Walker 50 says would have been loosely termed a breakdown, and it's been portrayed brilliantly. How does Walker cope with this element of the role? I always think I'm not affected by playing her, and it normally takes your family to tell you you are being affected. By the way you are behaving towards them, confides the actress who is married to actor Barnaby Kay. They share a teenage son, Harry, together. 
If you're being affected, you want to show that on camera. You want to show in the acting, not in real life. I feel huge, huge empathy for what Cassie is going through. You carry characters with you for the duration of the job because it is your job to look after the character and there is a feeling of something coming off your shoulders when the job ends. Difficult setbacks. When Series 3 of Unforgotten aired in the summer of 2018, the team was immediately asked to make a fourth series, shares Lang. But during a lunch out he had with Walker and Baskar, it was decided it would be good to take a break to recharge before filming the show again, so they did not start making Series 4 until January 2020. And then, 11 weeks into the shoot, lockdown happened. It was not until September that they returned to finish filming, and Baskar says having six months off and then coming back to set under such different conditions was the biggest challenge he has faced whilst making Unforgotten. Plenty of restrictions and guidelines were in place, so they were reassured they could all work safely, but the ongoing impact of COVID-19 was evident. You go and do your work, but when you come home, you're still worried about the pandemic, you're worried about your parents, your kids, or your family and friends, follows father of one, Baskar, who is married to actress and comedian Mira Sayal. So it's a worry that sits there, and I think what Main Street Production Company did, which was remarkable, was that for the hours we were at work, we weren't quite as worried about it there, and you know that that was quite an achievement. Walker, who is also known for shows such as Spooks, The Split and Last Tango in Halifax, admits she was really, really nervous about returning to the Unforgotten set after lockdown. But it was handled brilliantly, and by the end of the first day I was thinking, OK, they've gone above and beyond to ensure we're safe. It was a huge relief and made me feel hopeful for the industry. Careful words. Any addictive murder mystery will have plenty of plot twists thrown in and Lang is particularly good at leaving viewers scratching their heads about how it will end. Asked if she has to watch what she says when talking about the show, Walker quips, you have no idea. There's a sort of buzzing in my body because there's a part of me that thinks I'm going to go, I'm going to tell you who the killer is. It's a really weird feeling where yes, you, you get a little bit worried that you might say something that would spoil anyone's enjoyment of it. The worst ones are where they put you on the television and it's live and I get this awful sort of nightmare feeling that I'm just going to blurt out. But one thing Walker and Baskar can happily openly discuss is guest stars. We know that Sheila Hancock, Susan Lynch, Paldat Sharma, Liz White, Andy Nyman, Claire Calbraith and Lucy Speed are amongst the additions to the cast this year. It's been one of the joys of the, each of these series that you have these incredible people who come in, particularly in the interview scenes, where Nicola and I are just a few feet away from somebody giving a remarkable performance. It's such a privilege, enthusiast Baskar. I remember saying to Nicola, it's like having front seats at the theatre and watching someone just being brilliant. Unforgotten returns to STV Monday at 9pm. By Herald Magazine. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday, 18th of February 2021. Young Adult Book Review Smashed by Andy Robb by Gemma McLaughlin. Smashed Andy Robb UC Land Publishing £7.99. What is the book about? Smashed is equal parts funny and heartbreaking, told from the perspective of Jamie, exploring the effects of his parents' marriage collapse on his mother and six year old sister. Who is it aimed at? Though some of it is dark, it's distinctly relevant for young people everywhere. What was your favourite part? The book tackles serious problems, both societal and personal. What was your least favourite? What makes the book hard to read at some points is simply how young Jamie is when all of this happens to him. 
the fact that he has to navigate heavy issues around family, masculinity and unhealthy coping mechanisms as a teenager only makes these themes more impactful and difficult. Which character would you most like to meet? Jamie, there was something distinctly caring and good about him. Why should someone buy this book? The book tackles how to deal with your emotions and where that can lead. By Gemma McLaughlin Review of Bill Gates's new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, by Jamie Maxwell It's difficult to take anything Bill Gates says about climate change seriously. Through his trust, the Microsoft co-founder owns around $10 billion worth of shares in his friend Warren Buffett's holding company, Berkshire Hathaway, which invests heavily in natural gas and other polluting utilities. According to Lund University professor Stefan Gosling, he is, along with other celebrities, responsible for 10,000 times more carbon emissions annually than the average person. In January, he tried to buy the world's largest private jet operator, Signature. Gates has previously described using a private jet as his chief guilty pleasure. But even if this Seattle-based billionaire didn't have a vast carbon footprint, even if he was the greenest oligarch on earth, the solutions to global warming outlined in his new book would still lack credibility. How to Avoid a Climate Disaster tells us nothing we didn't already know about environmental breakdown. The opening chapters are packed with commonplace insights into the crisis. An average rise of 2 degrees Celsius in the Earth's temperature will decimate crop yields in developing countries. A hotter planet means more intense and protracted wildfires. By 2100, major urban centres like Miami will likely be underwater. Gates' solution? Market-driven innovation. With the right combination of state and private sector support, companies can slash the currently prohibitive costs of renewable energy, thus reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and dragging the global economy across that all-important zero-carbon or carbon-neutral threshold. The problem with this hyper-optimistic brand of green capitalism is that it doesn't work. Scientists have been warning corporate elites about the consequences of unchecked oil, gas and coal production since at least the late 1970s. And yet, half a century later, global emissions are still going up and the planet is still heating at an apocalyptic rate. Gates believes that we can complete the necessary shift away from extractive industries within the next 30 years, assuming investors are willing to embrace controversial initiatives like geoengineering and nuclear power. The consensus among climate activists, on the other hand, is that humanity has less than a decade to ditch its addiction to carbon and that market forces aren't moving anywhere near fast enough to make that happen. Gates is an incrementalist by the standards of the modern environmental movement, firmly lodged on the conservative wing of the green ideological spectrum. Unsurprisingly, given his Silicon Valley origins, he all but disavows politics as a mechanism for tackling climate change. Left-wing demands for a Green New Deal are notably absent from his narrative, and he makes no attempt to reckon with the vast, obstructive lobbying power of oil and gas executives. Instead, Gates places a huge amount of faith in the capacity of new technology to mitigate the effects of global warming and argues that business leaders should be free to channel the world's scientific IQ into a dynamic, competitive campaign against rising emissions – Governments, he says, should regulate and incentivise innovators, not smother them. Where possible, politicians should simply stay out of the way.
How to Avoid a Climate Disaster is an odd book in lots of ways. Gates is a pedestrian writer who uses technocratic language to convey conventional ideas with a billionaire's confidence. His advice is often doled out in list form, with separate sections explaining how consumers can sign up for green pricing programmes. Employers can connect with government-funded research and policymakers can change the rules so new technologies can compete. Even when taken collectively and applied in full, these recommendations wouldn't help us avoid a climate disaster. They might help us delay one, but that's not what Gates is advertising. I'm aware that I am an imperfect messenger on climate change, the 65-year-old philanthropist concedes early on in the text, if only he had stopped there. Sam Hewen's Men in Kilts, places to visit from episode one. Men in Kilts aired its first episode of an eight-part series last Sunday, taking us all on a wonderful tour of Scotland from Edinburgh to Pitt and Weem and all the way to the Isle of Isla. The TV show follows Sam Hewen, Outlander's Jamie Fraser, and Graham McTavish, Outlander's Dougal Mackenzie, as they road trip across Scotland. Fans across the world expressed their excitement on Twitter last week, with many saying that this was the perfect show to introduce them to Scotland. Here are the top places to see on your future road trip in Scotland when restrictions are eased and you're able to go on staycations based on Men in Kilts, Episode 1. The Kitchen, Edinburgh. The Kitchen, a Michelin-starred restaurant, is located on Edinburgh's Leith waterfront. The owners, Tom and Michaela Kitchen, opened the restaurant in 2006. The restaurant was awarded a Michelin star in 2007, followed by numerous awards, including Best UK Restaurant and Best Restaurant in Scotland. The Kitchen presents modern British seasonal cuisine, influenced by French cooking techniques. Sam and Graham thoroughly enjoyed their time at the restaurant and were mesmerised by the beauty of each dish presented to them. Pitt and Weem is an enchanting fishing village in the East Nuke of Fife, with its harbour being the main attraction, particularly early each morning. When touring the area on your staycation road trip, make sure to get down to the harbour as early in the morning as you can, so you're able to see the fishing boats come in with their catch of the day. Of course, do not miss the daily fish markets to get all the freshest produce. Around the harbour, you'll find many picturesque houses of traditional Fife design, with red pantile or grey slate roofs. The East Nuke is renowned for its incredible mansions and castles. The parish church, which dates from the late 16th century, and the attached ruins of the 12th century are a must-visit. Kelly Lodge is also an interesting building to visit in the area, a late 16th century townhouse that the Earls of Kelly once lived in. Lastly, there's the famous St Philan's Cave, which once housed the saint and is now seen as a shrine to him. During Sam and Graham's visit to Pitt and Weem, the pair sported some cable-knit sweaters and yellow overalls while boarding a fishing boat. On their visit, they ate prawns and met famous chef Tony Singh, who cooked them up a feast. Sam said during their visit, I'm loving this, we should do a cooking programme. To which Graham replied, all we've done is cream some butter and grind some coriander. It's not as exactly Michelin-starred stuff. Isle of Isla. During their visit to the Isle of Isla, they went to the Lafroy distillery where they enjoyed a 25-year-old whisky. Isla is a gorgeous island on the west of Scotland and home to nine working distilleries. Some say it has the best whisky in the world. If whisky isn't for you, then you can experience the island's incredible seafood, birdlife and seascapes. 
A whole day on the island could be dedicated to a sea adventure, which will allow you to get up close to rare wildlife such as white-tailed eagles and seals.